Today's sermon text is from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so this weekend, it's, it's MLK weekend. This is the weekend that our whole nation takes to celebrate and to remember the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King. And uh, I'm really thankful that we're preaching through Acts. I think this passage we're on today actually is maybe one of the most appropriate texts that we could be preaching through on this particular Sunday. Um, because this is a text that, above all else, is about God's unstoppable power. That even in the bleakest times, even when the odds seem insurmountable, even when it seems impossible for God to show up, he does. He shows up. He redeems his people. He gathers them together across these impossible barriers. When we look at Pentecost, when we look in the gospel, when we look at the story of Acts, we, we realize that he did it back then. But our reminder is that he still does this same thing today. And so as we study this miracle, this astonishing thing that, that only happened this one time, that's, that's not really going to be ever repeated in this exact same way, we got to realize too that this moment can teach us something about how God works all the time, how God normally works, how he brings his kingdom, how he gathers his harvest. So that's what I want us to look at. This, book, this passage is going to show us how we can expect God to work in our church and in our lives, even right now. So this morning, that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at this passage and see God's intentions for his harvest, God's method for bringing the harvest, and God's instruments for collecting the harvest. And the first thing I, I want to talk about is his intentions for his harvest, um, the reason why I'm using that harvest language is, well, we need to understand, uh, if, as we look at the account of Pentecost, what Pentecost was. Um, verse 1, it says, of chapter 2, uh, open your Bibles if you have them, uh, Acts chapter 2, 
Uh, if you don't have a Bible, grab one of those paperback Bibles. If you don't own a Bible, take it home. Uh, we'd love for you to have a copy. We think, we believe that this is the Word of God, and everybody should have access to it. Um, but Acts chapter 2, verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. So you notice uh, Pentecost was a thing already. Pentecost uh, was a Jewish feast day, um, and it was a really popular festival. This happened about 50 days after the Passover, uh, so the weather's pretty warm. Uh, people come from all different countries around Rome, and they are there to celebrate uh, the harvest. This is a, a festival where people are offering their first fruits to the Lord. And we need to know that. We've got to understand that's what Pentecost was, because Luke is trying to tell us here that this moment, this Pentecost, is where God is bringing in the spiritual first fruits. He's bringing in the beginnings of this spiritual harvest that he is planning to gather. And so it tells us here, um, they were gathered in one place. Who's they? Well, they, you can read about it in chapter 1, is a group of Jesus' disciples, men and women who were gathered around just waiting for the arrival of the Spirit. They were Galileans, it tells us in this passage. That means uh, they, were like, they were like the townies of Israel. They were, they were the people who were known for having thick accents, uh, having blue-collar jobs. They weren't particularly impressive people. But it tells us here in this passage that amongst these relatively unimpressive people, all of a the sudden, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared on them and rested on each one of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So it tells us that... that this is the moment that the people of Israel have been waiting for. When these 120 people started to speak, it was the fulfillment of a long-awaited prophecy. Uh, we read it last week. We're, we'll read it again. It's from Joel chapter 2, where God promises there's this day when the Spirit is coming, and it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And so here, we see this scene where these men and women, they are gathered together and they are prophesying in the spirit. And of course, that's not all, right? Luke tells us, Ariel read for us, that people from all over the Roman world have come and are present to witness this thing. And they are, are understanding, each one of them, they're understanding this message in their own languages. And of course they're shocked, right? Because I told you that, that the Galileans, they are not, they're the townies, right? They're, 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 they said, aren't these, aren't these the Galileans? Can't you imagine it? My, um, this is going to be a bad illustration. It's not in my sermon notes, but I'm telling you anyway. Because um, there was a pastor who used to work in our church. His name was Dan. And he had like a super deep southern accent. Uh, he just recently moved away. Um, Moses is his assistant pastor. And sometimes Moses comes, comes and preaches for us. 
Um, but Moses was telling me just yesterday that one day Dan took, took him uh, to South Carolina to visit his family. And uh, Moses is from New Jersey. And he said this was one of the, the most extreme cultural experiences he'd ever been through. He was with Dan's mother and his, his brother, and they went to Bojangles. Has anybody ever been to Bojangles? It is the, the most southern of the fast food chains, you know, biscuits and fried chicken. And he said he sat at that table, and he did not understand a single word that was said. But they were speaking English. <laughs> and I, and I was, as we were driving back, I thought, you know, that's kind of a picture of Pentecost, right? <laughs> All of a sudden, imagine those people began preaching eloquently in every na- language around the globe. The people were like, what is going on? Aren't these the Galileans? Now that alone, that would be a pretty shocking thing to witness something like that. These people speaking in a, in a language that they didn't know. And, but uh, Scripture is trying to tell us this is something even more special than that. It's, it's not just that they have learned a, a new language, but this is a, some kind of miraculous, heavenly speech. That's why some people, when they hear it, they're astonished, they're amazed, they understand everything coming out. And other people, they say, oh, these people are drunk. What's going on? I can't, I, I don't, I can't follow what's happening here. In other words, this is all from God himself. But for the people who did understand it, for the people who were able to catch what's going on, verse 12, he tells us, the question they had to ask was, what does this mean? And that's where we should focus just for a minute. What does this mean? That question, uh, it tells us behind this miracle there's a meaning, right? There's something significant that we need to find out. What, what exactly does this mean? Well, that's the case, honestly, for every miracle that Luke ever tells us about. Even in the Gospels, all the miracles that Luke records Jesus performing, they all have a meaning. They all have a purpose. They are all there to teach us something about the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus, the kinds of miracles that he did, he didn't just go like blow up mountains and fly around the city, right? But Jesus's miracles, they were healing people, restoring sight to the blind, giving life to the dead. Jesus' miracles were teaching about who he was and what he'd come to do, that he had come to restore and heal a broken creation, that he had come to reconcile a broken world to God. And this miracle, it's no different. It has a meaning. And the meaning here is he's trying to show us that that God's spiritual harvest, the, the people that God plans to gather in, his spiritual harvest is going to transcend and break down all the barriers that separate humanity. This first miracle, tongues of fire, enabling people to speak in all different languages, this miracle is a mission statement from God. John Stott, the old British preacher, he says, nothing could have demonstrated more clearly that this than this, that there was a, a multiracial, multinational, multilingual nature to the kingdom of Christ. And that's nothing. Uh, that's, that's not even uh, the, the, the beginning of, of how amazing this is. This is the reversal of the curse that took place at the Tower of Babel. Do you remember that story? These people, they all gather together around this lie 
that they could build a city, that they could build a kingdom where they would be strong and they wouldn't need God any longer. And as a result, God comes down and he curses them and he separates them all to protect them for their own good. But here, in this place, at Pentecost, they are united together. They are brought back together around this one universal truth. The saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, that they can be reconciled not only to God, but they're going to be reconciled to each other. And so, in Acts chapter 2, we first see these people, they are reconciled across a language barrier. But it's just the first of many barriers that God is breaking down. And we're going to keep reading this book. We're going to study this for the next few weeks. And, and as we go, we're going to see that as the Spirit continues to move, He breaks down not only language barriers, but He breaks down bar racial barriers and, and gender barriers. He breaks down age barriers and class barriers. So much so that by the time Paul is writing the book of Galatians, he declares that there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one. In Christ Jesus. Luke, he's trying to make a point here. He's making a big deal of the fact that every nation under heaven is represented at this moment. And that should be uh, really exciting, right? That should encourage us. But it should also challenge us a little bit too, right? It's exciting. It's encouraging because it tells us no matter who you are, no matter where you are from, there is no barrier too large to bring you to Jesus. That the only thing that can keep us away from God is our sin, but Christ is calling everyone to come to him for salvation. But it's also a challenge, right? Because it means if this is really what God's kingdom is supposed to look like, then we need to ask ourselves some hard questions. Right? We live in a city that is much more uh, international than Jerusalem ever was, right? We, we live in a city where truly every nation under heaven is represented. And what does our church look like? You know, are we really reflecting this mission? Are we really advancing uh, this message? How do we look in comparison to what we see here? Are we spending our energies? Are we spending our lives in pursuit of this? So that's the first point. The miracle at Pentecost, this feast of the first fruits, is that God has brought in the first fruits of what he intends to be a worldwide harvest. Harvest from every tongue and tribe and nation. That's what God's intentions are for his harvest. So now let's talk about uh, God's method for bringing the harvest. And this point, it's, you know... It's simple, but I want you to hear it. The harvest is the work of God. It's the work of, of his power, and it's the work of his power alone. I mean, standing from our vantage point and looking at what has happened to the church, there is absolutely no rational way to explain the existence of the church. There's no way. I mean, you can tell from this miracle, right, that this was way beyond their abilities, of course. Of course, this is a miracle. They can't do this in their own power. Nobody can all of a sudden start speaking in other languages. But not just the moment 
It's not just this moment that is beyond any human's abilities. Think about what happened after this. Think about what happened after these tongues of fire descended on them and they began to speak in other languages. The next chapter, we're going to read that 3,000 people surrendered their entire lives to the Lordship of Christ in one day. And then since that moment, for 2,000 years, over 2 billion people have called themselves believers. And that movement continues to grow. Folks, no human effort could accomplish that. There is no plan that could possibly have, have, have charted that out and made it work. Only the power of God could bring in this kind of harvest. And remember, I, I say that knowing that this harvest, it hasn't come uh, um, amongst these ideal conditions. I mean, think about the sin in the church. Think about the history of this world. Think about all the times that Christians throughout history have just fallen into error, have brought shame to the name of Christ. Think about all the times we have tried to destroy the church by our actions. All the moments when it seemed like the church had lost the gospel entirely, that had become so obscured that, that there were, think about all the times when there, the church was a bunch of people who just called themselves Christians but had no idea what it really meant to follow Christ. I mean, think about the days leading up to the Reformation in the 1400s, the early 1500s. When you could go to a priest and he would sell you a trinket and he would tell you that, that if you buy this thing, it is just as effective at getting people's souls out of hell as the blood of Christ is. But then, God showed up. And he breathed new life in the church. Or think about the church in the United States. Not quite so long ago. When white people... The people in power, people who called themselves Christians, justified owning other human beings. And then when they couldn't do that any longer, they still continued living these segregated lives. And not just segregated lives in, in, in the cities, but they segregated the church. The one place that exists because the barriers have been broken down. But then... God, again, he came and he breathed life through the preaching of the church, through calling people back to the truth of God's word, through the movement of his spirit. He used many men and women, including people like Martin Luther King, to call people back to this great ministry of reconciliation. Now, we're, I know we're not out of the woods. We're still struggling to remove those blinders uh, from our eyes. But, but here's the point. God is not going to let us fail at this. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he put it this way. He said, men and women in their blindness and their sin have done their very best to ruin the church. And if she were our creation, she would have disappeared a long time ago, like many other institutions. People in the church have misunderstood. They have gone wrong. They have preached error. And the church would have died. So why is the church still here? Well, there's only one answer. Because God's Spirit comes. He comes in revival. 
He comes again. He brings His Spirit again. And that's the point. The Gospel, it's powerful because our God, He is alive. He is acting. He is active. He is still today bringing in His harvest. That's why Luke tells us here that when these people receive the Spirit, the thing they do is that they are proclaiming the mighty works of God. The mighty works of God. That's key. Works of God. That means Christianity. It's at, at the heart, it's not simply uh, about agreeing to some set of propositions. It's not simply about agreeing to a bunch of different doctrines. It's not about religious rituals. It's not about coming to meetings on Sunday mornings. Our faith is in a God who works mightily. Amen? First, he works mightily by, by entering into human history, by taking on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, by living a life that we could not possibly live, by taking our sin on the cross, by bearing the punishment that we deserve. And then he works mightily by sending his living spirit into our lives to transform us. Our hope is not that we have, uh, we're going to familiarize ourselves with Christian teachings and then we are going to be able to work up the strength to improve ourselves. Like the more Bible that we read, the more techniques that we learn, the more strategies that we have, we're gradually going to make ourselves into better people. That's not our hope. Our hope is that the living God is working mightily in the lives of his people. That he is the one who is changing the life of everyone who surrenders to the Lordship of Christ. He's making you new. By his mighty working. By his power. And if you've been around the church, maybe that sounds obvious to you. Maybe that doesn't seem so special to you, but, but if you look at history, if you just think about it, you got to recognize how often we have forgotten this. Most of us here in this room call ourselves Christians, right? If you came to church today, it's probably because you're a Christian. <laughs> but do we really have life in us? Do we really know the power of God? Have you encountered his power working in you? Are you being transformed? Or are you just following some religion that somebody handed to you? You know, I, I'm going to get vulnerable here and just let you know the truth. I am a serial dieter. I'm always trying to find some scheme to lose 10 pounds. Just constantly. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I'm always paying money for a gym membership, subscribing to, to different workout plans. Don't, I mean, I know I'm surprising you here. Don't look shocked. I do have a gym membership. <laughs> um, yeah, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm finding strategies, healthy eating plans, groups to belong to. And sometimes I have success with that. You know, a couple of years ago, I, I completed P90X twice in a row. That was like 180 days of just straight workouts. But I don't have to tell you, it didn't stick. (laughs) 
The fact is, you know, I, I was able to change my habits, but it was really just a means to an end, whenever this, this catches on. What, what I'm trying to tell you is that there is a, a big difference between looking the part, between practicing the right things, right? I know a lot about healthy eating and exercise. I could probably write a book about it. But there's a big difference between knowing all the right things and really being transformed within. I was able to change my habits, but eventually my, my will gave out. And I think we do that a lot with our faith. See, when God really comes, he comes in power. He comes in our hearts by, our, by his mighty working, not simply through rules and regulations and, and rituals. God brings us life. And we desperately need that life today. We need it as desperately today as the church needed it in the 1960s or in the 1500s or in the first century AD. Christianity, it's not a practice. It is the wondrous working of God. Our faith isn't something we just decide upon. It's actually something that happens to us. The Spirit, it sweeps in. He sweeps in. He controls us. He captures our lives so completely, and He saves us. That's the method. That's the method that God's using to bring in His harvest, His mighty working, His power. So, those are the first two things we see in Pentecost. Pentecost shows us that God's intention is to bring in this worldwide spiritual harvest that includes people from every tongue and tribe and nation that breaks down all of these barriers. And it shows us that he's going to do that by his mighty working. That's the method. But before we move on from this passage, I think... Uh, I want to remind you, lastly, of, of the instruments that he has chosen to gather this harvest. I was talking about kind of running through history, some of the amazing ways that God has managed to, to save the church when it seemed like it was on its last legs, how he's built the church in spite of our weakness. And, and I hope as you think about that, you, you believe in your heart that God really doesn't need us to build his church. Now, what happened is certainly amazing, right? Billions of people throughout history finding salvation in Christ. But if we're being honest about it, if you want to start thinking rationally about it, it would be a lot more efficient if God didn't use us, Right? Seems like it would have happened a lot faster if he just maybe sent an angel. <laughs> Somebody who wasn't so concerned about what we might think about him, <laughs> you know? Somebody who didn't have our weakness to get in the way. Doesn't it seem like he could have done that better? Doesn't it seem like he could have been a little more effective? 
I mean, think about this. Think about Acts. Think about the people that God used from the very beginning. I I really love verse 13, right? It says, as the people were watching this, verse 12, all of them were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they're filled with new wine. He says, they're drunk. That's a reminder that this is not a group of of glorious people here. These 120 people, these disciples of Jesus, you remember who they were, right? If you've read the Gospels, you know. Jesus' disciples are are a group of people that no one saw as as particularly worthy, right? They're, They're fishermen. They're soldiers. They're former prostitutes. They're, they're tax collectors. And as we re- we're going to read next week, but I think it's kind of funny, when these skeptics accuse them of being drunk, you know, Peter, when he defends them, he doesn't say, how dare you besmirch our good name, right? He's like, it's only nine o'clock. Come on. <laughs> like, even for us, that's a little bit early. This isn't a, a noble group of people. These people that someday people are going to call St. Peter and St. Mary and St. James... These were messy people. They weren't especially well-suited for this incredible task that God's about to give them. Except for one thing. They were loved by God. They were loved by God. And that's not a small exception, right? That's a huge exception. Because that means that, that His Spirit was in them. That the living God was using them as the instruments to lay down the foundation for the church. But it's not because they're great. That's what I want you to know. It's not because they're great. It's not because this was going to make the job easier for God. God uses weak people for His mission because He he is also at work restoring the dignity and the worth of his children. By, by, by using these people, by using us, he's like, he's like a mother who chooses to cook a meal more slowly so that she can bring her child in to help. God's showing us his delight in us. His love for us, that he would slow down and use us as his instruments for this mission. That's actually really good news for me today. That God delights in unimpressive people. God calls people who are deeply flawed to himself. People who struggle with sin. People who wrestle with doubt. People who make big mistakes that hurt people. He takes those people and he redeems them. He gives them his power and he makes them, he makes you more and more like him every single day. That's why the gospel is so amazing. Because across every tongue and tribe and nation, across every race and class and and gender, there is one common denominator and that is we are all Poor, miserable sinners. We are all unimpressive 
before the Lord. We are all without hope apart from Him. But Jesus came so that the weak could be made strong. So that the poor could be made rich. So that the sinner could be made righteous by the mighty works of God. And so I I know that for some of you here in this room, those aren't just abstract thoughts. I know that some of you here this week, this very week, have come face to face with just how unimpressive you really are. I know I have. And I want to encourage you. If you're in that place this morning, I want to invite you to look at Jesus. I want to invite you to look at this passage. To look at a God who has chosen unimpressive people to be the instruments of his harvest. And I want you to know that God, he's not surprised by your weakness. He pulled you off the trash heap to begin with. He's not surprised you're not holy yet. But he has no intention of leaving you there. He has no intention of leaving you behind. Because if you are in Christ, his power is at work in you. And God, he doesn't see you the way you see yourself. He sees the glory that's at work in you. He sees what he is transforming you into. He's like a mother with a child. He's preparing this great spiritual feast. And he is inviting you to come along, to participate, to be an instrument in this harvest. Even right now, in spite of your week, even right now he's inviting you. He's not waiting for you to get it all together. He doesn't need you to fix yourself before he starts to use you. We are his instruments, and we're, we're not strong because of who we are, but because of his power that's working in us. And that's, that's true today. It's as true for us today as it was way back then. This, this worldwide harvest is coming. That's what Acts is telling us. This worldwide harvest is coming, and, and God's transforming power, it is here now. And you, you are the instrument that he has chosen to use to bring it in. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your mercy to us. Thank you that you are far more patient with us than we could possibly imagine. Thank you that you chose to found your church on tax collectors and sinners, on fishermen and soldiers, on on prostitutes, on the lowly, on people like us. Lord, there's nothing glorious in us to offer to you. And so we come to you empty-handed today and we ask, Lord, would you use us? Would you give us your power? Would you change us from the inside out? Would you turn us into witnesses who would share the good news today? 
Father, we pray this in your powerful name. In the name of Jesus, amen.